for another double episode of Black Sails, continuing our final season coverage. Getting exciting, a lot of things coming down to the wire, and a lot more people put in really tough places where they have to make tough decisions. An ongoing theme of the show that's just continued big time this season. I'm not envious of any of these characters. Not only do they have all these tough choices, they don't even have air conditioning. (laughs) (laughs) Meta Elements. So these last couple episodes have been put together by the more veteran filmmakers involved with the show so far, director Steve Boyum and Lucas Edlin from the last two episodes, and writing together Jonathan Steinberg and Robert Levine, who are the show creators basically, doing one episode, and Robert Levine and Brad Caleb Kane doing the other one, Brad Caleb Kane being one of the more prolific writers other than the show creators themselves. Right on. And we've been trying to learn a little bit more about the historical context of this show as well. And that's led us to listen to our friend Matt at the Pirate History Podcast. I've listened to his whole show, and now we're listening to it again. This is the first time for you, and what are some of your thoughts on that? I think I've listened to the first two or three episodes so far, which I appreciate. He spends a lot of time setting the stage, giving you context for this time period of piracy. One thing he brought to light that I didn't quite realize, this sort of movement for independence that these pirates are making at Nassau, that was like a real thing. I thought that was something the show was just embellishing to give these characters some sort of good side, some sort of nobility beyond just being pirates. But apparently that was a real occurrence in history. Yeah, there's just they've changed some details and embellished some things and added fictional characters, of course. But there's a very strong historical basis here. A good example here, we get a lot of new, interesting, and strong characters this season, which is kind of neat for a final season. One of the ways the show incorporates some of these historical details is with some of these characters. Now, of course, we don't know exactly what some of these people did. Some of the stuff is embellished or invented, but they're using as much of the history as they can in a lot of places. And in fact, the Guthrie clan, I think we mentioned before in a previous episode, are real. Their involvement in all this is more speculative or completely made up, but... They were real, they were rich, and, you know, at least they're, it's kind of cool that they're using historical figures to fill in these gaps. Narrative. Earlier in the season, we had Israel Hands, who is, as we mentioned, both historical, fictionalized, and in the show, so he's pretty interesting. And we have now Julius and the Slave Army. I don't think Julius is a historical figure. I, I don't know that history recorded the names of these slave leaders, but surely they existed, and this guy's pretty interesting. Yeah, he's quickly becoming one of my favorite characters. I think his perspective is very interesting. Yeah, he's like soft-spoken, clever, and very insightful. The first thing we see this episode, episode six that is, is the slaves being freed. And I took note of how they didn't look like they were particularly happy. They weren't like, hey, we're free. And that speaks to some kind of, some darker truths about the situation. Julius himself kind of explains this indirectly over the course of these two episodes and had sort of explained some of it in the prior ones. As, as, as long as he's been around, these themes have been raised. Multiple times, Julius argues to aim for more, say, attainable goals. He kind of sees what Flint and the Maroon Queen and these others are after as basically what Max says. Like, you can't stop civilization. Like, this is crazy. You're not going to be able to win that. 
uh, he says changing the world doesn't work this way. Not like this. Can't do it all at once. Right. Yeah. So he thinks this is all too hopeful, and he just wants to focus on something that's maybe more attainable, but also pretty difficult, which is just staying out of slavery. They just, it's like, yeah. I don't care about beating this. It's like, let's just have a more real, uh, recognizable goal here. Stop slavery. But there's a big, huge difference between the what Julius and his compatriots are facing versus what the pirates are facing. And that's something that Flint and Silver and the others fail to recognize, which is that if they fail, they get hung. But if Julius and his men fail, they go back to slavery. Yeah, well, not just go back to slavery, but their families might be punished. Yes. You know, they face a lot more difficulties. Even if they win freedom, they're not going to be as free as the white men. They're also starting from a lower aspiration, right? Like, a lot of these pirates started from a better position in the first place, maybe in the Navy, you know, parts of society, free men or whatever, that are in one way or another... They've fallen into this life of piracy, which hard to say whether maybe it's better or not. Maybe they have maybe more freedom or liberty, but maybe they have worse lives, tougher lives. Maybe they don't have a choice about it. But these slaves that have recently become free are so much better off than they've been at any other point in their life. They're just happy to maintain this. They don't have some grand goal of changing the world like Flint seems to. And I think it's reasonable for them to just want to enjoy a safe life. That's something Flint enjoyed and has moved on to this bigger cause or maybe is just enacting some sort of revenge. Julius and a lot of the slaves already got their revenge. They just want to not go back to the terrible state that they were in before. Right, and they see that it could easily happen again. They see how easily they could be enslaved again. They realize that, yes, they're free, but that might be an illusion. It might be just temporary. And basically, the bottom line is that their circumstances and their perspective is vastly different than some of their allies. And that's something that Julius points to. And that becomes really important. Interestingly, the Maroon Queen is in the same boat as Julius, but she sees it differently. She would probably face enslavement as well, but she still sides with Flint and Silver and her daughter Maddie, who is a big believer in this cause. She takes Julius aside after Silver basically gives Julius the help us or go away talk. And it's not really clear on whether she convinced him or not. You know, it's kind of hanging. I would say... She probably did. I, I think that even if on a fundamental level or a big picture level, he still thinks he's right and she's wrong on an emotional level or a heat of the moment level, he's still going to side with her. I base that on the fact that after the battle at the fort there at the at the Underhill plantation, when Silver says, look, if we try to run, we'll be just defeated and scattered in our separate ways. But if we stick together and fight, we might be able to hold them off. Go get your men and come back. And Julius just looks at him and turns away without response. But then later he does come save the day. So I kind of feel like that's what's going to happen here. Yeah, I think it might be too. I think Julius does value the common cause, even though he's well aware of its fragility. But he still realizes that they're stronger as a group. I really appreciated that conversation between him and the Maroon Queen. I think that they both in different ways were right or maybe wrong, but it wasn't like one of them was just geniusly, perfectly correct and one was moronically completely wrong. They both had very, very valid points and weren't completely convincing the other person, but weren't like upsetting them with their perspective either. They were recognizing that's true, but this is also true. Well, that's true, but this is also true. Yeah, it was a respectful disagreement on some several different points. One thing the Maroon Queen's confidence is boosted by is the arrival of all these people. There's just a bunch of other pirates and, and freed slaves that are showing up to join this so-called revolution. 
And that's clearly a plus, and maybe Julius will see it that way as well. I mean, it is a plus having more people. But in any case, it really highlights the, the complexities of what's in play for so many different people. There's a lot of different things that people care about and that matter and that things that can go wrong. Basically, everyone there is in a, between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> Speaking of a rock and a hard place, we've got a million examples of that in these episodes, <laughs> as we always do with Black Sails. At Nassau, the rock or the hard place, whichever you prefer this particular time, it's really hard or really rocky, because uh, we're talking about the Spanish fleet. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, pretty rough. An army given license to do whatever on top of that, it's brutal. I mean, it's kind of disturbing when you see an army unleashed and just realize, you know, this is like the worst that mankind has to offer. You yeah. Know, organized, you know, a, a, like sanctioned brutality. It's yeah. really pretty bl- bad, even though... We don't feel a lot of general sympathy for the pirates as far as human as they are as human beings, you know, like a lot of them are pretty scummy too, but no one deserves this. Yeah, it's also worth noting that every person on the island isn't an evil pirate. No, Some of yeah. them are just wives and shipwrecks and former sailors and farmers and businessmen and all these other people. They're not all deserving to die, but they're all being thrown into death. So It's like those janitors on the Death Star. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think even less so. I think even less so. Because it's not like Nassau was built in order to promote piracy that's true pirates just sort of took it over there are still people there that weren't actively trying to support some immoral cause yeah there's people that are just like making trade goods like making wagons or yeah (laughs) you know people who were brought there by their family wives and daughters and so on you know that didn't have a choice about being there or not people were born there you're right it's interesting because Woods Rogers, you could start to see the doubt form in his mind as they're approaching Nassau, and then as he sees this woman getting raped in front of him. He's realizing what he's brought here and wondering if it's right or not, but he kind of has to, like, well, it's happening. I've got to live with it. I've done worse things. Maybe I've, I've done worse things. Maybe this is the worst thing I've done, but he's made up his mind one way or the other. There's momentum. But then when he realizes, oh... My, my plan wasn't complete. Eleanor is still out there somewhere. And he... It just dawns on him how yeah. horrible this is and, how, and what he's done. Out of desperation, he asked the Spanish leader, you know, hey, you know, you got to tell your men not to hurt my wife, but it's just not realistic. The Spanish like, leader's like... We don't yeah. have cell phones. How do yeah. I order these guys to stop? You know? <laughs> Dogs of war have been set loose. I can't... Even if I could somehow communicate that to everyone, they don't know who your wife is or what she looks like or where she is, but I I can't even tell them that anyway, assuming they would all obey. This is war, you know? It's war, and they've been told to do what their worst, and they're doing that, and they don't want to stop. Rogers wasn't exactly an easy guy to like in the first place, but this just really makes him even harder to like, although you do kind of sympathize for him, I think, because of just how badly everything backfired. Like, as much as he is kind of an unlikable guy... You never want to see someone lose their wife and child because of yeah. their own actions. Like, he's not an evil guy. He This was probably an evil thing that he did, but I don't think he... He didn't have evil intentions. I think he's just... He's willing to sustain evil consequences. Does that make sense? Sure. It, from a big picture sense, from like a historical sense, if you will, if you look back, he's trying to stop piracy. Piracy's bad. Okay, well, then he's doing a good thing, you know, so... The details of how it's playing out, and when we get to know some of these pirates personally, and we don't want them to lose, or we're rooting for them, whether we should be or not, it's hard to say. At this point, it's easier when they have this noble cause for freedom and independence. It's easier to be on the side of the pirates. But when this started off, 
the pirates are all terrible bad people. They're raping and murdering and pillaging and some of the worst of them are dead and some of the leftovers have taken on more noble causes. But Wood Rogers' perspective is they're all bad, evil criminals, you know what I mean? And he's trying to stop them, so... And it's interesting because he's sort of becoming the man that he was trying to stop, right? He's becoming, and it's because of some of the same circumstances that that lead men into piracy. Now, some of them are just greedy, violent men. A lot of them are. But a lot of them kind of were born into that life. They were desperate. You know, they were born into desperation. It's like in the modern world. A lot of people who turn to crime are desperate. Not nearly all, but there's a section of society that turns to crime partly because it's the only thing they know. This is what's happening to Woods Rogers. He's becoming desperate and he has no allies, no support. Now he has no family. One of the few people still around him, he has a few soldiers. He still has those, like, noble guys. I don't know exactly who they are. <laughs> those yeah. the other business leaders around the community. Some of them survived. But even Miss Hudson, he doesn't even trust her anymore because he suspects her, well, she admitted it, yeah. of manipulating the deal with the Spanish to get Jack Rackham thrown into there. He, had, he came to a logical conclusion as far as that went. But when the new information came to light, it made more sense. He, he may still trust her with when it's all said and done but he definitely is between a rock and a hard place even (laughs) if he happens to have one woman as an ally that he can barely trust he's still in a tough spot you know yeah so if you believe in karma this is all hitting him pretty hard his actions are really having immediate consequences of the worst kind but it's not just about his own losses it's about who he's inspired to inflict harm on him (laughs) he has got a lot of people who want to get revenge on him and those people are enlisting powerful allies Ironically, this powerful ally that's now apparently coming after him is his own dead wife's family. The one he was going to go to for help are now going to come after him, apparently. That's not entirely settled, I suppose, because Rackham has this rock and a hard place again that he's in. And of course, this takes place in Philadelphia. Jack and Mr. Featherstone and others learn that it's not always sunny in Philadelphia. (laughs) Pop culture tells us that pirates have eye patches and hooks and peg legs, but we don't really hear about frozen balls. But hey, (laughs) we're getting real here. I really appreciated that, by the way, the fact that they were cold, that they were shivering and bundled up and breathing mist, that it's a different environment in Philadelphia than in the warm Bahamas. The freaking Caribbean, yeah. Yeah. Like, of course they don't have warm winter coats. Yeah. (laughs) Fandomedia.reviews. The response Jack gets from Grandpa Guthrie is... Perhaps as chilly as the weather. Yeah. And that was preceded by Jack's frustration with the whoever that girl was that talked to him, the real bubbly girl that wanted to hear the stories. That was a really neat scene. He tells her to put down a newspaper and read a book because he's frustrated with how wrong everything is. She's mm-hmm. got but it's it's neat to hear. Like, look at what I said, eye patches and hooks and all that. Yeah. That's bullshit, right? None <laughs> of that's real. I mean, it's not completely bullshit, but This is exactly what we're talking about. All the things she hears about Vane making a stew of his enemies, like, that's ridiculous, right? But And and she believes, she's like, yeah, well, it's more interesting to believe that. And that really speaks to why people believe in the peg legs, because it's more interesting. These stories are more interesting. The effectiveness of propaganda and the dangers of yellow journalism and fake news is that, you know, people hear something that seems plausible from an authority, and it just becomes the truth, you know? Yeah. And, of course, Grandma Guthrie was listening to both the chilly reception by her husband and the bubbly reception from, well, whoever that was, maybe another granddaughter. I don't know. And she was very interested. Now, of course, she points out what an idiot Jack made of himself (laughs) by (laughs) 
this yeah. pirate proposal in front of all these respected businessmen. It was a neat moment when he first announces who he is. Rackham. Yeah. He's like, Captain yeah, Jack Rackham. I'm Jack Rackham. And there's this, you know, physical reaction from the men around that in the moment I read, and I imagine Jack read, is like, oh, whoa, here's someone we should listen to. But really it was like, oh, here's someone we have no respect for. None of them even, yeah, they just wanted to, they kind of stared at him and just were like, well, What's he going to say? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least this is curious. Grandma Guthrie seems very interesting. The conversation she has with Jack and then with Max and Jack, which was mostly just a conversation with Max <laughs> the second time around, was was a really good conversations. And I think that in particular, Max's conversation with her was really interesting because she really, he, Jack brought Max in to impress her knowing that she would. And 100% correct. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was, I don't have a lot to say about the conversation other than that it was great. Yeah. You know? It was keen of Jack to bring her in, especially when at first he didn't want her around, but he realized, okay, the situation is different, I realize. I want to give Jack a lot of credit for properly reading people. You know, he's uh, maybe my favorite character of the show overall, a combination of I feel like he's been the least ruthless and murderous compared to a lot of other people. He's been often the most shrewd. A lot of times he's taken a hit to protect someone else. And he's a pretty good actor, too. The performance and the presentation of his character is good, too. Max points out that someone should have drowned the cat. And she uses that as a reason for why they're good business partners. Like, look, you need ruthless action. That's why this cycle of violence and everything has continued and why it keeps resetting. It's because no one is willing to go that extra step, to be the one who does what's necessary no matter what what's necessary actually is. And that's what sells her because she's like, yeah, you're right. Someone, you know, and so she, and she couches it in that metaphor so perfectly. That said, though, I feel like that's what Ridge Rogers is doing, and it's not working out that well for him. So. Right, and and Jack arguably isn't this guy. He isn't that ruthless, necessarily. Yeah. That's exactly what Anne says to him. He's like, he points out, yeah, I gotta get through all these things to do that. And Anne's like, forget that. You're not that kind of guy. Like, even if you can do all those things, yeah. you're not that kind of man. That was a good moment, too, when she's like, how are you gonna do this? And he was thinking of logistics, and she's like, no, 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 how are you gonna do this? You're the person you are can't be part of this betrayal, you know? Yeah, it's gonna be a balance between that and how much he cares about his goals, which is he cares a lot about Anne, and he really cares about his legacy. He cares a lot about Woods Rogers being perceived as the winner. Right? And he's he's less caring about what Charles Vane would think. Because I think Anne convinced him that Vane himself wouldn't care. He's not sentimental. And that kind of moved him. You know, I think that took a few episodes for him to, for that to sink in maybe. But it certainly seems to be in, in place now. But yeah, how is he... Is he going to be able to seize that goal to the point where it's going to enable him to pull the trigger? If he even can? I think there might be an out here. I think there might be a way to escape the rock in a hard place. This is this is a thought that I have. I feel like we've already had this seed planted about Hamilton still being alive. I wonder if it'll be possible for Jack to claim to have killed Flint and Flint to disappear in this reserve or whatever in Florida where Hamilton is. I wonder if that's where the end game might be going. So the mm. world will believe that Flint is dead, but Flint will actually still be alive with Hamilton, and Nassau can be secured with Jack or whoever without an active pirating presence. Maybe right, right. former pirates running it. But I wonder if that's a way that everyone can kind of get their cake and eat it too. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that there's another thing in this scene that maybe gives a clue to how something will be resolved. The interesting conversation about Max and her wages and how she doesn't have slaves Mm -hmm. now of course this isn't a high-minded thing she's not like oh slavery's wrong i mean she does think that she was a slave and you know grandma guthrie asked there's more to it isn't it she couches it in business 
But yeah. of course, there's the other element too. So it is a bit of the ethics are there, but you know she has to present it as a business thing because obviously Grandma Guthrie is not sentimental or, as she yeah. says, kindness doesn't run in her family. Yeah. So she's not going to care about the slavery aspect in that sense. But she does seem to agree with Max that well, that makes good business sense. You know, if that's what works, that's what works. You know, you got to do what works. But also. I think that might be part of the resolution to the slave army. Like if they, you know, this maybe these are two story elements that are going to end up being part of the resolution. Max is going to maybe become a big business owner. She's going to hire along a lot of these four of her slaves and, and take care of them well, like as a good employer. Yeah. That might be where this is headed. Because as far as looking at the story elements, those two things seem to fit. And I, and I thought that conversation was maybe a little out of place. So maybe it was to set this up. Yeah. As far as predictions go here... I think Anne and Max are going to live. They're both left there in Philadelphia, and that might be... Maybe Anne's even going to get to know Grandma Guthrie through Max. That'd be interesting. Another strong female character respecting another strong female character. For They have different types of strengths, obviously. It sort of falls in line with a slice of history, too. The real Jack Rackham was known for having two women aboard his ship. Both of them, in one way or another, sort of escaped death and history, even. It's not quite known what came of them. Maybe these could be those two women... And this is the way that they escape without being lumped in and hanged as pirates, you know. And that's part of why I think Rackham is doomed, because the real Jack Rackham didn't survive this this period. Yeah. And he's in such a tough spot, you can see why it won't work out. Like, I like your theory for how it could work out for Flint and Hamilton, but if we're fitting things to history, Rackham's gotta die and that sucks he <laughs> but could die after <laughs> that right he could yeah. die he could he could arrange for flint to escape for max to take over the island and then still end up being hung yeah. whether it's something he recognizes he has to do as a sacrifice or something happens in a moment of confusion after the fact who knows but it does seem like many characters are destined to end in tragedy here <laughs> yeah i agree of course, he's worried about even not even getting that far. He's worried about all the people in his way to getting to Flint. You know, he's worried about this, he's got this army of allies that Flint's got that are all res- now have newfound respect for Flint as a leader. Some of them already had respect for him as a leader because mm-hmm. he's really good at it. So that's going to make it really hard to take him out. And he mentions Silver as well, who wouldn't want Flint dead, at least not yet. And his beast on a yeah. leash, which is mm-hmm. Israel Hands, who we're also pretty sure is going to make it through the series because he's in Treasure Island. And Hans himself isn't just a beast, right? He is an incredible fighter, but he is cunning. And he points out to Silver at the end of this, of Episode 7 that now maybe you're going to have to kill Flint because if this rescue doesn't go right, we have the cash and we have the men's loyalties to worry about, that's the situation you're faced with now. And you surely you realize that, right? And Silver kind of yeah. gives him the real hard, like, damn you and your... <laughs> correctness stop making me think about my own tough decisions (laughs) and of course that's a really tragic thing because from silver's perspective he's already had to make an enemy of billy uh, based on having to like choose between them and flint might be next as obviously silver is going to choose Marty over flint if it comes down to that somehow i wonder how deep the mind games go if you will i wonder if on some level hands letting silver know that he understands where this is going if silver will realize flint probably also sees where this is going you know yeah and it's, it's interesting because he knows it's an emotional thing he's he even Marty's mother isn't willing to go this far even she wasn't willing to trade the cash apparently maybe she was still kind of thinking about it but silver was like we're trading the cash and flint and the maroon queen are like hold on a sec yeah. 
But he just immediately goes aggro and is like, what's more important here? You know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Because he's his emotions are far more raw about this. And he's really putting Flint between a rock and a hard place. He can't say, no, Maddie's more important. And he can't say, no, the money's more, you know, he's trying to find this middle ground. Because on one hand, again, in like a big picture sense, in a historical sense, this one person's life isn't as important as this huge cause, right? There's a lot of people, a lot of stuff is caught up in it, so there's a lot at stake. But he can't say that to Silver. No, none of that matters as much as Maddie. And we've seen and talked about how some of these leaders, it's easy to paint them as bad guys because when these tough decisions come, they make a decision so decisively, maybe even easily, even though it's a terrible thing, but it's just what you have to remember, both sides of the decision are terrible things. They're just better at assessing in the big picture which one is less terrible. And in the big picture, Flint knows that this money is more important than this one woman. But Silver in his emotional moment is not seeing the big picture. And the Maroon Queen, you know, again, that's Madi's mother. She also takes a different approach a little bit. That's something that Silver in his emotional state didn't quite consider, which is that what would Madi want? Madi would not want them to trade the cash for her. And that's what Maroon Queen realizes. Silver, yeah. that didn't dawn on him. And maybe it will later. Maybe it has when Hans pointed out. It's not necessarily I don't think it'll matter. Even if it dawns on him, it's not going to change what he does. Yeah, that's probably true. This is sort of making Julius's claim come true. That Julius says Silver's a king over a kingdom that is no more. And this is sort of proving the truth of it. This is how easily it can fall apart when just something comes in the way of their common cause. Yeah, he said that they all have this common cause, but all that has to happen is someone break up that common cause, and sure enough, it's happening. And even though Flint specifically points that out to Silver, he's like, hey, look, he's trying to split us apart here. This is exactly what this is about. And it worked anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or is working anyway. <laughs> so let's talk about Madi for a minute. Uh, she has a really interesting conversation with Eleanor at the beginning of episode six. Eleanor doesn't understand why she would trust Flint, you know? She says, your father didn't trust Flint. And she's like, listen, lady, my <laughs> father didn't trust any of you. He didn't trust Flint less than he trusted you. He didn't trust Flint, but he also didn't trust you. And so don't, like, act like you're above him in that regard. Yeah. You sort of sniffed out that she wasn't dead. I think it was actually kind of obvious. They didn't show the body, and she's too important to just die kind of... It's, it's not exactly off screen, but it kind of is. It's off camera, you know, and... I was suspicious, yeah. It seemed, it seemed like she was dead, the way everything was presented to us, but it also seemed like they could have shown us, you know, some charred bones or something to make it clear. But then they start off the next episode talking about her having died. I was like, oh, I don't know. Maybe she did die. I don't know. Still suspicious, but sure enough, yeah. And that scene turned out to be important for revealing how they both view her and her place in the cause and what she would have wanted. And that ends up setting up the, the ransom scene. It's interesting, in both of these cases, they didn't drag that out. Silver doesn't go a long time before learning that she's alive. It's not like several episodes worth. And just as earlier, when they're separated, and when she thinks he's dead, yeah. she learns that he's yeah. alive pretty quickly too. Neither of those things were dragged out very long, which is good. They went long enough for us to see the emotional impact it has on the other one, but not long enough to like... I don't know how to say this, to feel like the writers are tricking the viewers. You know right, what I mean? Right. Yeah. There's enough drama. They don't have to use a cheap trick like that. You know, we're engaged enough. They're doing enough with these characters and these plot lines that they don't need to play around with our emotions in that way, you know? Definitely. So do you think they're going to succeed here with the rescue? 
It's hard to predict. Like, this yeah. show is good at giving you sort of straightforward resolutions with unpredictable consequences or, or, like, subplots that form from that. It depends on what you mean succeed. Like, I can imagine that they get Maddie, right? And if that's success, like, rescuing her from imprisonment. But what if they rescue her from imprisonment but have to turn over Flint? Or have to turn over the cash, or mm-hmm. you know what I mean, or the ship yeah. gets burned, or something. You know, I could see it'll probably be a, a bittersweet victory. In the meantime, she's languishing in prison, and Rogers makes this brutal offer, pointing out that her options are bad or worse. This is what defeat looks like. Of course, he's being extra. He's turning up the the cruelty a little bit because she refused to answer his question about Eleanor. She does eventually answer the question and says that she dies fighting, but that so will I. So that she's basically saying, you're not going to be able to push me on this. You know, sure, threaten us, make these offers. It doesn't matter. We're not, we're clearly just at each other's throats now. Someone's going to win and there's not going to be any negotiation. It's just going to be, someone's going to come out on top and the other's going to be completely vanquished. So what's the point in, in these deals? Now, of course, the reason Maddie is in this spot is because of Billy. Of course, she was captured anyway, but the reason that she's in getting this special treatment <laughs> by Rogers is because Billy points out who she is. And there's a lot to say about Billy here. It's a continuing theme with him. Silver still wanted to use him, partly because they're friends and partly because he's an asset, but Billy's not having it. He's like, dude, you're a hypocrite. You're telling me don't make you choose again. You already chose. Yeah. So, you know, kill me if you gotta. But then he's let go, and this is just this, the two themes, one of which you really noticed, and I noticed a minor theme that accompanies it. He is so close to death so many yeah. times. He makes narrow escapes and seems like, what, how can he possibly get out of this? Like, he falls in the water in season one. And you're like, well, yeah. he's clearly dead, but nope, he's not. And yeah, so he's just the man who gets out. But he also just never has any success, despite always being in a great position. Yeah, he has time and time again had a key piece of information. Like in the very first episode, he knows that map. That paper is not the map. It's just a blank paper. But in that moment, he recognizes the position that he and everyone is in, keeps that piece of information to himself to try to make better of it later on. And earlier on, we see this concern for finding Max. And he shows up, I got Max. You know, like (laughs) over and over again throughout the throughout the series uh going way back he knew about the spanish presence you know when they thought they're just gonna go get this goal real quick he said no you don't understand there's a serious force out there that we just can't run out and get the gold real quick he consistently has important pieces of information consistently tries to use them to everyone's betterment and he consistently is punished for it (laughs) he (laughs) just is not getting anywhere (laughs) it just blows up in his face constantly even like the best example maybe is making silver so powerful like that really (laughs) yeah blown up in his face funny thing here now billy wants revenge on everyone and before he really just wanted flint (laughs) yeah yeah so flint's situation is improved in that regard in a funny way except for that now so many other people want to kill flint too it's like the cool kid thing to do which is why billy isn't as interested anymore (laughs) everyone's doing it and i want everyone (laughs) (laughs) one of the things this is something you pointed out to me as well is that's also billy's role in treasure island he's the one that has the map yes that's right yeah (laughs) to the cache Fandomedia.reviews. So Eleanor's character is pretty much removed from the show now, but there was one thing I wanted to point out that I thought was really interesting. When the Spanish fleet shows back up, pretty quickly, the powers that be on the island realize what's going on. Flint recognizes, okay, Rogers, Rogers left. left. Now he's back. Now the Spanish Armada came back. You know, he was, doesn't want this island to be taken over by pirates. 
when the Spanish fleet sends this signal that is Roger's signal, the leaders there in the fort pretty quick, quickly realize, okay, he Rogers went and got the help with the Spanish. So what we need to do is X, Y, Z. Everyone's like, recognize what happened and is making plans based on it. Everyone except for Eleanor. Eleanor is like, no, he didn't do that. He wouldn't do that. What are you talking about? And Flint's like, okay, fine. He didn't do that. But still, let's. we need to do X, Y, Z, you know. But she was just in denial about it. That she just couldn't accept that that's what he did when it seemed so clear to everyone else. Yeah, it was very tragic, a very brutal death, long fight scene there. And she didn't die right away. She bled to death from her wound. This it's- is a, a weird thing to say. I, I, I want to word this properly because the, the statement I want to make seems so terrible. But I wanted her to die. No, what I mean is, I didn't want her to die, but I want to be afraid that characters can die. Does that make sense? And it seemed like she was in such harm's way. I even, through this frantic fight for her life, thought that she might live. Other people have taken worse wounds than that and didn't live. But it sort of made sense from a literary perspective. It made sense that this is Roger's punishment. You know what I mean? And it makes sense that there's this army sweeping across the island. How is this girl going to make it through it? It was a big tragedy, but it makes me feel like the story's being told realistically. Especially because I already feel like a couple of characters do have plot armor. I'm glad that a character that doesn't have plot armor actually was killed. One of the things about Guthrie that made her a great character was that she was a really good leader. She was decisive, came to conclusions really quickly, and kind of generally had an air of authority and was just genuinely intelligent. Flint, of course, is also an extremely natural leader, maybe to an extraordinary degree, you might say. He's handcuffed and still telling people what to do. <laughs> and they just, like, don't even hesitate to be like, yeah, let him tell us what to do. Yeah. And I think that some of it's not just, it's not that's not so crazy. You know, he was ex-English Navy and an officer, and these are English soldiers around him. They yeah. kind of recognize not just his air of authority and his natural leadership, but he carries himself the way they're used to officers carrying themselves. We've talked in the past about the importance of reputation, and you see him living up to his reputation. Like, he definitely has this air about him. You know, everyone already knows that he's a great captain and everything that goes along with him, but moment after moment, he keeps earning that reputation. Yeah, and he also has just knowledge about things that the other guys who don't have a military background have knowledge in. He points out that when they're discussing what the Spanish are going to do after they've repelled them the first time, he's, he says, they're coming back in greater numbers. They will not allow themselves to be defeated by us. You know, mm-hmm. they, they cannot tolerate losing to pirates and slaves. That's just, they're more proud than that. And that's something the other guys didn't really get. And But as soon as they heard it, they were like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, from the pirate perspective, you can imagine, they would just run and loot and grab what they can, right? But from the Spanish perspective, they might be there ostensibly to run and loot and grab what they can, but, oh, wait, we just lost a battle to pirates and slaves? Okay, everyone, come together, reorganize, retroop, everyone go to this place, and we're not going to lose. We cannot have that story spreading. We cannot be like, oh, the Spanish army was defeated by pirates. That that reputation spreads to Europe. That goes everywhere. I mean, that's they just really cannot have that. Flint also immediately assesses the value of this new influx of slaves and new soldiers and knows immediately how they can use them. In the scene with the Maroon Queen, when everyone's sort of discussing what course to take, he, again, just takes lead in this discussion. His combination of knowledge about the way that things work and knowing what questions to ask. Like, he knows what pieces of information need to be brought together from this group of people and then what decision to make based on information. And I think there's something really clever here. 
which is also a cool historical reference. He mentions that they have more men than Henry Morgan had when he sacked Panama. Two really clever things about that. First of all, that happened 50 years prior, and it's a historical event. Morgan was famously successful, and he's similar to Flint in a lot of ways, and I think Flint was kind of tying himself to Morgan there. Morgan was an English military person uh, who was given license to be a privateer. Privateer is basically a legalized pirate. They're just one nation you don't go after, which yeah. is the nation <laughs> that gave you this permission. So he was going after the Spanish, kind of saying, hey, I'm an ex-English military guy. Morgan was. He was successful with less. Either it's Flint cleverly drawing this parallel between himself and Morgan, or the writers of the show cleverly drawing a parallel sure. between Flint and Morgan. Yeah, sure, a little both, maybe. And this, of course, takes us to the other quality of Flint. Apart from his amazing leadership skills and his military experience, we get his manipulative side. He's a schemer. Just a part of him, something that Silver recognizes that, that Billy was really <laughs> against. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we pointed out earlier, he immediately recognized the Maddie Ransom plot for what it was and attempted to divide him and Silver. Part of what makes him such a good schemer, and it's worth noting there are a few other schemers in this show, is that he usually finds the way that the thing he wants is also the thing that other people want. Hey, look, we can make a bunch of money, but also you can get revenge for your granddaughter's death when Rackham goes to the Guthrie's, right? It's always these two different things that maybe you don't think one's important, but hey, there's also this other thing. That's true. Flint maybe doesn't reveal one of the things that's important to him, but still knows how the thing that he wants is what the other people also want, whether they realize it or not. Right, his motivation to getting back at England is totally different than what he's been selling this whole time. He's like, yeah. independence, freedom, which is a great thing, right? But he's pissed about what they did with Hamilton and yeah. Elizabeth Barlow and all that. That's his motivation more than anything else. I'm sure part of him cares about the independence movement too, you know, because he needs a place to live and survive yeah, right. afterwards. But, yep, he's also just after that. Despite all this his efforts to prevent the division, or at least benefit from it if it comes, Hans points out to Silver that that division is coming, and as Julius pointed out, the common cause is potentially being removed, and that's going to divide them. And, well, what's going to happen first? Is the common cause going to fall apart before it's successful? Or is it going to hold together long enough for them to at least defeat Woods Rogers and maybe carve out a life for them to sail off into the sunset with when the show ends, or, <laughs> or what? Remember, Anne had this same concern earlier on. And so far, mostly, it's sticking together. But who's to say it will continue? Audio elements. One of the loudest moments in the entire series was the Spanish Armada firing their cannons. It was really awesome and overwhelming and like, whoa, that's see what a bunch of ships can do. On the other side of the massive noise made by a fleet of ships opening fire, we have these silent moments, something we've talked about in the past that the show really does well with the music and the choice to not use it sometimes you really in these dark dramatic moments of characters reflecting over deaths of loved ones silver eventually finds out that maddie's not dead but when he thinks that she is and flint comes to talk to him about it that was a really somber quiet moment i wondered in that scene too by the way when flint said i did everything i could to save her and he's trying to console silver and silver seems to try to console flint back and he says it wasn't your fault. And he repeats it. It wasn't your fault a couple times. I wondered in that moment how much they each were thinking about the terrible things that have happened to Flint and how he might blame himself for Elizabeth Barlow's death, for example, you know? Yeah. Visual elements. Another good moment of silence was when Rogers was looking over Eleanor's dead body. Mm. I thought that was a well shot scene in general. Visually, it was really good. They give this above shot of the room 
which is dark. Another thing I think they do well in the show is not having things be overly lit because there just weren't light bulbs in rooms back then. You had to re- <laughs> you had to rely on sunlight coming through windows or candles. And it was a really neat shot the way the light was coming through the windows, cast into the room, the above shot that they chose. And then a really good moment, I thought, a good use of film to <sighs> convey a message. You have Woods Rogers sitting with light behind him like coming through the windows. A lot of sunlight, yeah. And death in front of him. It's really a fitting scene, you know, if you think about the framing. I, and I do like to think about the framing. Someone had to choose that scene. Someone had to choose where the camera angle, where he's sitting, where the light's coming from. These are all things that filmmakers do. And they did it perfectly for that scene. And I think they do it perfectly for pretty much every scene, but that one really stood out. Right on. And they added a little extra visual to it by having her head turn and a tear roll down. And that was that was kind of surreal. And you pointed out that that was a bit similar to Flint's visions of Elizabeth Barlow. Yeah, I like that they've had a few surreal moments like that in a show when a character is sort of lost in themselves, whether over some sort of tragedy or over hunger or fear or whatever it is. It's neat to see a character's internal struggle presented outside of themselves. Yeah. And in Rogers' case, he keeps getting interrupted during these moments. Yeah. In this case, he's interrupted to find out that, yeah, your wife also had a dead baby. Yeah, it's even worse than you thought. (laughs) There's a couple of other amazing shots. I really liked the the high shot above the two pirate ships converging outside of Nassau after one goes north, or right before one goes north and one goes south. You get a really high overhead shot of those ships with a huge vista of the sea and the mountains around them, and I thought that was amazing. We also got a really cool kind of movement around Silver as he realizes that something's up right before the Spanish cavalry charges out of the sugarcane fields. There's like a 360 as he's kind of like considering the battle from a high perspective and where's our weakness and what's that sound? (laughs) And it's also kind of showing us the entirety of the surroundings. And I want to point out, by the way, that moment, that scene was actually a pretty standard Michael Bay shot, if you think about it. And Michael Bay is actually one of the producers of this show. Michael Bay gets picked on a lot, by the way. I don't particularly like him. I recognize he's doing something, right? Because his movies have huge success. They're hugely popular, you know? And he also, even if the movies are, I don't know, superficial and flashy, it still takes a lot of effort. It's still quite a filmmaking challenge to put these movies together that he does. I saw a few episodes of this YouTube series. I think it's called Every Frame a Picture by this guy who's an editor who kind of picks out different elements of film and focuses and highlights them. Sometimes he'll do a certain director or a certain genre. He'll do like comedies or Clint Eastwood or something like that and just kind of focus on some technical aspects that the average person might not notice, but he does a good job of bringing to light. And he does one on Michael Bay, and he points out that Michael Bay actually comes up with a lot of innovative filmmaking techniques. The problem is that he uses them for every shot. (laughs) <laughs> Not just the epic moment, but every time someone gets into a car or walks through a door, every time any of the pencil falls, everything is just this epic motion of cameras and angles and everything. But I feel like in this show, they pick and choose the moments well, and that was a really good one. That really did sort of build the suspense of this attack from behind, you know. There's some small details that I really appreciate, too. Uh, on the other side of things, you have, you're talking about these big, you know, epic shots. That's some nice, nice little small things, like... The scar on Eleanor's arm from when she was cut in the previous episode. Yeah, yeah. And Jack's eye still being bruised. And, of course, Anne's wounds being the shape they're still in. And, of course, a bit more sad is the blood trail that Eleanor left as she crawled out of the house. Burning. Yeah. You could really see it on the ground and on the steps and everything because you got a nice overhead shot of it. And that's just really good detail. I really, really appreciate that type of thing. I 
constantly am frustrated with movies and TV shows when someone gets in a fight and they get smashed in the face like six times and the next day they're just nothing. There's no scratch or bruise or anything. I really feel like a lot of times when people are making movies and TV shows that if someone just watched it and just said, hey, what a da 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 you know, I feel like there are continuity errors that should and could be caught that often don't. I feel like they do catch them here. I feel like someone has got an eye on making sure that everything comes out right in the end. And I appreciate that attention to detail. It makes me really believe in this world and these characters. Final thoughts. All right, so let's talk about our favorite moments. I couldn't decide. There were two that I really liked, so I'm going to take them both. There's two episodes. You can get two moments. Hey, good point. I really liked Flint taking over while he was still in handcuffs like just starting to issue orders tell everybody what's what and you know he wasn't like being commanding he was just you know he wasn't speaking like a commander he was just being really intelligent and everybody recognized it and they're like yep you're in charge all right and the other one was speaking of being in charge grandma guthrie Mm -hmm. when max and jack are sitting there and she lets them have an awkward silence and as soon as jack starts to talk she interrupts him and starts telling a story about (laughs) her son and the cat yeah (laughs) it was both humorous the moment that happened but when you think about it it was actually a good play on her part to keep control over what's happening there. yeah Yeah. she was managing the situation she was she knew exactly what she was doing yeah what about you I also had two moments. One was also involved Jack when uh, Max kind of challenged him about the idea of attacking all of civilization. Oh, He's yeah. like, look, I just saved your life. Talk to me again about wiser, smarter men than me. Look, you know, I thought not only was that a, a good interchange between the two of them, but it was good, good acting, too. It was a good moment. And my other favorite moment was the conversation that the Maroon Queen and Julius had. I really liked the, I don't know how to say this, the respect they have for each other and the points that they were making how they could both be right at the same time you know they were different and and even the themes of what they were talking about i i I really appreciated that moment right on Fandomedia.reviews. That's our show for today. If you could, take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use. Also, go ahead and take a moment to follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at Fandomedia. Until next time, I'm Israel Fans. And I'm Billy Bones Fanderly. 